good day to all. My name is Dr. Elijah Sadafel. Welcome to What Christians Should Know, Part 3, The Bible. As always, please refer to the written lesson for more comprehensive scriptural references, footnotes, and guides for further study. Before I dive into the lesson, I'd like to take a moment to focus your attention on where we're going. People often think that the Bible is not relevant to their lives, is out of touch, or perceive it as something too big or complicated to grasp. It's a problem of expectation because people either suppose something the Bible isn't, for example, a roadmap to a stress-free life, or assume little to nothing from it because they fail to realize what the Bible really is. What Christians should know is that the Bible offers a new way of looking at and understanding the world. This fresh perspective ultimately leads to life, peace, joy, and the completeness that so many are searching for. The Bible awakens a dormant imagination within all of us, and this consciously and unconsciously forms our identity and how we therefore perceive and interact with the world. Walter Brueggemann has labeled the biblical example a covenantal historical model of thinking about our existence and our faith in God. He says this model implies an enduring commitment between God and God's people based on mutual vows of loyalty and mutual obligation through which both parties have their life radically affected and empowered. As a result, the meaning of our lives is not rooted in ourselves so that we just get out what we put in. Rather, there is someone greater than all of us, and through grace, despite what we have coming to us, God trusts in and takes humanity so seriously that in spite of our depravity, we can all be saved by grace. The Word of God reveals there is something timeless, better, and more powerful than what this world has to offer. The world says you achieve and you get, and you don't do and you don't get. God says in spite of what you've done or not done, I will give you eternal life. The Bible gives everyone a genuine, fresh identity that refuses to allow us to forget who we truly are demands obedience to expectations, and will not allow us to settle for false identities the world would have us adopt. The Bible is much more than a good idea or an ideology that has an alternative end. It is a concrete and unchanging fixed point of reference in an ever-changing world. That world is characterized by identity crises, displacement, and burden. From that fixed identity, we derive our life's mission and calling. When we waver, the Bible stays the same. When we hesitate, the Bible remains focused on track. Our opinions, mood, or thoughts may change, but the word of the Lord stands forever. The Bible locates us in fellowship with God and therefore in fellowship with other servants of God. Thus, we all belong to a community of believers and all have a responsible and caring family in one another. We are therefore not all alone and have definite meaning and purpose in each other through Christ. 
The Bible teaches us that we all have a very unique prospect for the future, where those in the front will be in the back, and those in the bottom will be on top. Again, as Walter Bruggeman says so eloquently in The Bible Makes Sense, the Bible provides us with an alternative identity, an alternative way of understanding ourselves, an alternative way of relating to the world. It offers a radical and uncompromising challenge to our ordinary ways of self-understanding. It invites us to join in and to participate in the ongoing pilgrimage of those who live in the sharing of history. The surprises of the resurrection concern the emergence of expected new life in persons, in institutions, in social arrangements. And they come just when we think there are no more reasonable expectations. The Bible teaches us that when the world says no, God says yes. The Bible teaches us that when the world says you're not, God says I am. The Bible teaches us that when you thought you had been destined to be enslaved to death, Christ set you free to live. Number one, what is the Bible? The Bible is the word of God. It is pure, perfect, and true. It is a perfect guide for our lives. It nourishes us and is the lamp that guides us in the darkness. The word is a person, Jesus, as stated in John chapter 1. The word is the speech of God. For example, when God makes a decree as in, let there be light in Genesis 1-3, that is God's speech. The word is also a personal address to a group of people or to an individual as seen when God comes down and speaks to Israel gathered at Mount Sinai in Exodus 20. Another example is seen when God speaks from heaven at the baptism of Jesus and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The word is speech through a human vehicle. Deuteronomy 18.18 says, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. The word is in written form, so that there is an accurate preservation of it. Anyone can refer back to it and inspect it, study it, recite it, use it, and apply it. The written word also makes the Bible accessible to anyone who wishes to read it. In Exodus 31.18, God wrote the Ten Commandments himself and then gave the two stone tablets to Moses. In Exodus, it says, When he had finished speaking with him upon Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written by the finger of God. In other instances, people inscribed what was told to them. Moses wrote down additional laws given to him by God in Deuteronomy 31. Other examples of people writing down and inscribing what God had told them include Joshua, Isaiah, and Jeremiah. The Holy Spirit brought remembrance of Christ's words to the disciples so that they could faithfully remember and record what Jesus told them in John 14.26. In his letter to the church at Corinth, the Apostle Paul wrote that, 
the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. The word Bible derives from the Greek word Biblia or book. Essentially, it is written by God, but revealed to several human authors, more than 40, who then faithfully recorded what the Holy Spirit inspired them to write. The words are God's, but the vehicles used to transcribe those words are a very select group of humans. This process of divine revelation for biblical transcription is called verbal plenary inspiration. Note that this term, like Trinity, is a human construction intended to describe a biblical principle. The word verbal plenary inspiration does not appear in the Bible. 2 Peter 1, 20-21 says, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Also, because God is truth, he therefore inspired the authors to write what is wholly true. The Bible is more than a mere book because the Holy Scriptures pre-existed their physical and tangible form. In essence, the Word of God is an eternal and timeless phenomenon without equal in the realm of human existence. In the beginning of John's Gospel, the text says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Further on in John 1.14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh refers to Christ. So in the same way that God is timeless and eternal, so is his word. And if his word transcends our existence, then we ought to pay full attention and listen to what God wants us to hear. After the word was flesh, Jesus spoke of sending the Holy Spirit to teach all things and bring recollection to all that he said during his earthly ministry. Hebrews 4.12 speaks of the word as, living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. Certainly, when God repeats or reiterates a message, we have to pay special attention. The Bible has 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New. The Old Testament takes us from creation to a time before the coming of Christ, and the New Testament begins with the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Christ. In fact, the first four chapters of the New Testament are four different perspectives of Jesus, including the things he did and the things he said. The New Testament continues by giving Christians and Christian churches instructions on how to think, live, and act appropriately. The Old Testament makes up the overwhelming majority of the entire Bible. In fact, more than three-fourths. The Old Testament has 929 chapters and over 23,000 verses. The New Testament has 260 chapters and just under 8,000 verses. 
keep in mind that the chapters and verses in the Bible are human constructions added in the second millennia simply for the sake of organizational purposes. The original writings of the Old Testament were written on papyrus, an older form of paper that often consisted of long scrolls. The original writings of the New Testament were written on parchments or specially prepared animal skins. The Old Testament spans a history of thousands of years, and the New Testament spans a history of less than a hundred years. The Old Testament is predominantly written in Hebrew, and the New Testament is written in Greek. One way to think about the Old Testament is that it describes how God initiated and then began relationship with humanity. It first began with individuals and then grew into a much larger family and then an entire nation of people. The Old Testament describes a God who establishes a series of covenants with the people, yet despite all of his warnings, they fail to follow directions and adverse consequences result. So, because the people failed to follow commands and were incapable of obedience, a new way had to exist. That new way is the New Testament with Jesus. The Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament, and the New Testament is concealed in the Old. In order to truly understand the New Testament, one must first read the Old, as the New Testament essentially is a fulfillment of what was said before. What Christians should know is that the Bible above everything else serves as a theological statement with a primary aim of revealing exactly who God is, what he has done, and how we, as God's servants, are to engage in a relationship with him. So while the Bible, or the scriptures, does proceed through historical events with different people and places, its goal is always to give us theological meaning through the context of human history. And when I say theological meaning, I mean understanding who God is. So if you need an answer to an exact play-by-play of how the universe went from this to that, that answer will not be found in the Bible, nor does the Bible claim to do that. If you need to know how the power of Christ's atoning sacrifice frees you from the grip of sin, then you're in the right place. The Bible contains authoritative truth, but non-authoritative truth can be found elsewhere. Two Latin slogans summarize this idea, sola scriptura, by scripture alone, meaning that the scriptures alone are the highest form of authority. The phrase prima scriptura means that there are sources secondary to the scriptures that allow us to better know and understand God, or guides that we can follow, but these guides are ultimately judged and tested by the scriptures. An example of such guides would be revelation through creation or our consciousness. So the Bible is the ultimate source of truth by which all other sources are judged, but not the only source of truth. This is why if I need to figure out what antibiotic to use to treat a complicated skin infection, I don't open up the Bible. Hence, when we judge the Bible, we have to first ask ourselves, what does the book claim to present? And because the Bible may seemingly lack a piece of data, 
that does not tarnish its reputation. If I need help with my taxes, I don't open up a book on home improvement, nor does this query negate the authority of the latter. If you ask the Bible a tax question, it won't give you a direct answer, but it will say that God gives humanity intellect and wisdom, and those attributes, being from God and therefore good, can be used to seek and discover other forms of truth. So how can you trust the Bible? The fundamental scripture verse that validates the authority of the Bible comes from 2 Timothy 3 verses 16 to 17. It says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. In the book of John, Jesus says that scripture cannot be broken. All of the Old Testament prophets recorded what God directly told them, either by themselves or through a scribe. Their frequent and repetitive use of the phrase, thus says the Lord, is an example of such a revelation. As mentioned before, the Apostle Peter said that in regards to all of the Old Testament, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The Bible, or the Word of God, is tested and tried, and something that is timeless, meaning it is as applicable then as it is now, as it will be in the future. The Word can be trusted because it is more than a book, but it is a viable living organism whose trustworthiness is evident by the fact that it changes the person who reads it. Because the Bible is complete and timeless, it specifically says that Jesus is the final word of God revealed to humanity. No other books are to be written after the Bible's final book, Revelation, and we will all experience scriptural silence until the second coming of Christ. Finally, nothing is to be added to the Bible. Practically, what this means is that the Bible is totally final and anyone proclaiming to have something new to add to the scriptures after the scriptures were finished is a heretic and contradicting the Bible itself. Which means, quote-unquote, if God allegedly revealed himself to someone and directed them towards new scripture, or if a divine messenger revealed new scripture for recital, then both instances are blatant fabrications contradictory to the Word of God. Now here is a very valid question. If human beings wrote the Bible, then why should you believe it's the inspired Word of God and not some fabricated human concoction? There are actually four ways to answer this question. The first response is that you believe in the authority of the Bible itself. This means you believe the repeated declarations of the scriptures themselves to be the infallible word of God as already mentioned. The authority of scripture pertains to the fact that all the words in the Bible are God's words, so to obey those words means you obey God. To disobey those words means you disobey God. Because the Bible is the ultimate authority, it claims its supreme authority by its own words because no other authority can exceed it. 
and the Bible is self-attesting because if it needed to appeal to a higher authority for validation, it could not be the ultimate authority. Additionally, when God spoke through a prophet, the person was being used as a mouthpiece for the Lord himself. The Bible's authority is also evidence in the fact that the Bible has the power to change people for the better, and the Holy Spirit moves people when reading its words. Since God cannot lie, all of Scripture is refined, tested true, and is not only truthful, but is truth itself. Hence, the Bible is inerrant, meaning it is incapable of being wrong. The denial of inerrancy stems from one of the most dangerous phenomena in the entire world, the rejection of an ultimate absolute truth in favor of a truth only judged to be real by my own personal experience. The Bible also has clarity, meaning that anyone who earnestly seeks to know and understand God's teachings will be able to follow the scriptures. In fact, even children can understand the Bible and it imparts understanding to the simple. Yet this does not dismiss the fact that some passages of the book are indeed difficult to understand. The reader should be aware, however, that since the Bible is the incarnate word of God, it requires an open heart and mind to receive the gifts of the book, so that, of course, someone with a closed heart will never be able to fully embrace the word. The Bible is also necessary because without it, we would not know about God, Jesus, faith, salvation, grace, sin, the prophets, covenants, the gospel, or all the other wonderful things contained within it. This is why in Romans 10, 13-17, Paul says, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Thus, it is necessary to read the Bible in order to obtain knowledge of the gospel, maintain a spiritual life, and obtain knowledge of God's will in order to live a more Christ-like life. The Bible is also sufficient, meaning that it has everything God wanted us to know. In other words, we don't need anything else besides the Bible in order to discern God's will or in order to learn how to be more like Christ. This doesn't mean that God can't add to his words. It means that we can't. In the time after Moses' death, for example, all Israel had was five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those five books now form the beginning of the modern Bible. That was sufficient for them at the time, and God added as history moved forward, stopping by the end of the first century. The sufficiency of the Bible is a very important concept for our modern time because it means that any problem or question that we have has an answer in the Bible. The answer may not be specific to your question, but the timeless biblical principles satisfy all queries. 
The second way to answer the question, how can I trust the Bible, attempts to determine what possible malicious and unifying reason would any biblical writer have to fabricate a story to their own detriment. Moses, for example, who wrote the Bible's first five books, could have stayed in Egypt his entire life and lived the high life as a member of privileged society, but he believed in a tradition that led him out of Egypt into a less than privileged life, only to lead hundreds of thousands of grumblers and complainers in the desert for 40 years, only to die before he got to where he wanted to go. If all the apostles of the New Testament were fabricating a grand scheme, then for what did they deceive and how did they gain? All the apostles lived lives of ridicule and were mercilessly killed prematurely. The apostle Peter, for example, was crucified upside down. And to top it all off, all of the apostles died for the truth when all they had to do was recant, but they didn't. All Jesus had to do was say, I am not God, and he would have been left alone, but he never recanted. Some unimaginative critics have went as far to suggest that the original followers of Christ suffered from mental illness or hallucination, but that doesn't explain how multiple individuals suffered from the same exact delusion or hallucination. Mental illness is not contagious. If someone were to respond by saying their faith was quote-unquote blind, then why die for a supposed lie? If it was a trick to delude the simple or susceptible, then how would one explain the very well-educated, well-respected, and well-learned folks of the time seeking the power of Christ's message? Luke, for example, was a physician and wrote the book of Luke and Acts, and the Apostle Paul, a well-respected, highly educated Jewish theological scholar, wrote many books of the New Testament. The third way to answer the question, how can I trust the Bible, explains that in contrast to any other religious authority, the Bible has people from many different times in different geographic areas making prophecies, fulfilling prophecies, while all pointing in the same unified direction. It would be very easy, for example, for me to state that I went up on a mountain in a cave or to a field and say that I received divine revelation when the only barometer for my experience was me. But if multiple people unconnected to one another received the same revelation that not only reinforced what others heard, but also accurately predicted what would happen hundreds of years in the future, and the cost of declaring that word was death, separation from society, ridicule and anguish, then you have to begin paying attention. There is an internal consistency in that the books of the Bible refer to themselves and other books as authoritative. Jesus repeatedly referred to the Old Testament scriptures as authoritative and quoted many of them, and the Bible repeatedly has fulfillment of prophecies often made hundreds of years in advance. For example, David prophesied that Jesus would be crucified hundreds of years before crucifixion existed, more than 500 years before Jesus was born, 
both David and Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would resurrect from the dead. And, hundreds of years before the events came to fulfillment, Zechariah stated that Jesus would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, Isaiah said Jesus' mother would be a virgin, Micah said that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, Hosea said that Jesus' family would flee to Egypt, and Malachi predicted that Jesus would enter the temple in Jerusalem. The fourth way to answer the question, how can I trust the Bible, is by far the most scientific one and uses a historical and an academic approach. In short, all of the methods used to determine the historicity of any ancient document reveals that the Bible excels far beyond many other ancient manuscripts. So, if you reject the Bible as a legitimate historical document, then you also have to reject the entire canon of literature from the ancient world. For the specifics, I will direct you to a wonderful book by Kenneth Boa and Larry Moody titled, I'm Glad You Asked. Also, there are numerous non-biblical sources that locate Jesus, and especially the historical event of the resurrection, and Christians in history. Examples include writings of the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, Suetonius, and Pliny the Younger, as well as several accounts of early Christian martyrs who suffered and died by historical governments because of the reality of Christ and his resurrection. Some examples can be found in Part 1 of Readings in World Christian History, Volume 1, and include, for example, The Martyrdom of Perpetual Infelicity, The Martyrs of Loins, and Ignatius's Letters to the Magnesians. In general, trusting the Bible means trusting it both in a physical and literal sense and a spiritual sense. This is why Jesus asks Nicodemus in John 3.12, If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? One cannot separate the facts of the Bible from its theology, morals, and teachings. For example, Adam cannot be just a myth, because then the doctrine of the inheritance of sin and the downfall of all humankind is wrong. If Jesus wasn't born of a virgin, then his birth would be no different from the rest of humanity, predestined to sin and therefore unable to atone for humankind at his death. The reality is, Jesus Christ literally hung on a cross, and his blood literally was shed, and his body literally died and rose again three days later. Without the shedding of blood, there could not be any remission for sin. How did the Bible assume its current form? Wayne Grudem says it best, The ultimate criterion of canonicity is divine authorship, not human or ecclesiastical approval. The Bible canon basically is the list of all the books that belong in the Bible. The process by which books were chosen is called canonization, Canon is a word that means measuring rod. The Old Testament was written roughly between 1200 BC and the first few hundred years before the birth of Christ, predominantly in Hebrew, although some parts of the Old Testament are in Aramaic. Although written in this time, the composition of the Old Testament spanned thousands of years, and a tremendous influence of the oral tradition existed in ancient Jewish society prior to the written text taking form. 
In fact, the Bible began as we know it today, when God directly gave his first written laws, the Ten Commandments, by stone tablets to Moses to give to all the people of Israel, as we read in Exodus 31. The tablets were regarded as special and authoritative, placed in a very special container, the Ark of the Covenant, and without question were esteemed as a direct work and writing of God. From there, Moses wrote the Bible's first five books, and later other individuals, such as Joshua, Samuel, David, Solomon, and Isaiah, wrote the other books over time. The Old Testament is the Bible that Jesus used since the New Testament did not exist yet. The Old Testament books were not chosen randomly, but needed to fulfill specific criteria. 1. A prophet of the Lord wrote them. 2. What those prophets said was consistent with what other prophets said. 3. An act of God confirmed the authority of the prophet. 4. What the prophet said carried with it the authority to influence lives. 5. The community accepted the prophetic utterings as true. After about 435 BC, there were no further additions to the Old Testament canon. However, within the Apocrypha are books composed after 435 BC. These books were never accepted by the Jewish community as scripture, and they are not included in the Hebrew Bible, which is our Old Testament with some organizational differences. They contain some speculation about the end of days, historical accounts, some short stories, and advice on how to live day to day. Once Jesus arrived on the scene and raised up disciples, he and the other authors of the New Testament cited the authoritative Old Testament scriptures more than 295 times, excluding the Apocrypha and formalizing the exclusive validity of the Old Testament. The Roman Catholic Church does include the Apocrypha in their biblical canon, even though the Apocrypha does not claim authority as the rest of the scriptures do, and despite the fact that those books proclaim as truth claims that are inconsistent with the rest of the Bible. Historically speaking, Israel did not begin as a people who based their culture or religion on books until the end of the biblical period. And because Israel was a small yet distinct socio-historical entity, the writers of the Bible's books never had any awareness they were writing an authoritative Bible that would lay the groundwork for religion. Instead, the Old Testament writers were particularly concerned with communal need and Israelite crises. So there really has never been any significant debate about what belonged in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. The New Testament is a different story. After Christ resurrected and ascended, Christianity was becoming a big deal in ancient Roman society. After all, this guy called Jesus rose from the dead after being crucified by the powerful Romans and told everyone that they could live with him in heaven. So there were many apostles or first-hand eyewitnesses to Christ and his life, but it became clear that the potential for fraud, abuse, and self-gain in writing a New Testament book was very apparent. So, the canon of the New Testament was chosen based on three criteria. One, the authors of books based it on eyewitness testimony of the events in Christ's life. Two, 
they were accepted by the followers of Christ as legitimate, and they revealed how the power of God can change people's lives for the better. 3. What they said agreed with the rest of the scriptures. There are exceptions to these rules. Luke, for example, wrote his two books, Luke and Acts, after receiving information from Paul and after both collecting information from a multitude of eyewitnesses and having investigated everything carefully. Luke also accompanied Paul on several of his missionary journeys, evidenced by several we passages in the book of Acts. Mark wrote his book in the New Testament, and he received his information from Peter, who was an eyewitness. Jude was not a direct eyewitness, but was closely associated with James, who was the brother of Jesus. If you're wondering after all of that how we can trust that we've gotten it right and have reached a consensus on the right book, ultimately that faith must rely on God, whom has brought all things together for good in order to bring his true word to light. God, being a God of love, intends the best for his people, and his words are our life. This is why Deuteronomy 32.47 says, For it is not an idle word for you, indeed it is your life, and by this word you will prolong your days in the land. The Holy Spirit also convicts us that in the present biblical canon finds validation in historical considerations and through the unified power the word has on us when we read the Bible. Readers should know that there are references in the Bible to other sources of information, such as the reference to the book of Jashar in Numbers 21.14. All this means is that other written works have some helpful pieces of information, but they are not part of the biblical canon. Similarly, I may refer you to a nutritionist in order to acquire information on sodium intake, but that resource is not the standard of ultimate truth. Isn't the Bible self-contradictory? The great theologian Augustine once said, If we are perplexed by any apparent contradiction in Scripture, it is not allowable to say the author of the book is mistaken, but either the manuscript is faulty, or the translation wrong, or you have not understood. The question, isn't the Bible self-contradictory, is very important. The short answer is no, because as mentioned before, God is truthful, he is unable to lie, nor does he ever contradict himself since all of his words are refined and tested. God never says anything hastily without thought, and nor is he divergent from his reliable character. In addition to this, because God is omniscient, his thoughts are much higher than ours, and there are many secret things that God knows that we do not. Finally, the truth is often hard to digest, and we either reject that truth outright as non-truth, or recognize the truth as such, but suppress it. Our human perception is also limited by finitude to see the infinite, as Paul described as looking into a dim mirror. The Bible is a book written on many different levels, and one often finds that the deeper you go, ideas and concepts that originally were in opposition become revealed for what they truly are, eliminating the apparent contradiction. I don't want to casually breeze over this question, so I will expand much more on this in the next section. Many people assume the Bible is guilty from the start until something proves it right. The problem with this approach in general is that it makes life non-livable. 
in the biblical sense then, many shun what is superficially implausible and then say, that can't happen, and then use that as proof that the Bible is false. The problem with this approach is that it is rejected in any other field. When I see a patient who has a problem but I can't figure out what the diagnosis is, that doesn't mean that they're faking it or that their problem doesn't exist. It simply means I haven't asked enough of the right questions or dug deep enough to find an answer. If scientists gave up every time they encountered something they didn't get, we would all be stuck in the Stone Age. A Bible student then follows the same blueprint as an astute scientist, that the unknown is not a contradiction or utterly unexplainable, but a worthwhile endeavor that rewards those who faithfully seek, study, learn, analyze, and research. How do you interpret the Bible? A seminary professor of mine said that biblical interpretation is about life, and your life invariably affects the way you interpret the Bible. So no matter who you are, your life experiences will consciously and subconsciously affect what a verse means to you. Second, there is a distinct difference between exegesis and eisegesis. Basically, exegesis involves extracting meaning from the text. Eisegesis involves putting your own meaning into the text. Whenever interpreting the Bible, always exegete and never ever eisegete. Otherwise, you are telling God what you think of his words. There is always a human temptation to reject what we read because we don't like what God has to say, which equates to a suppression of the truth. The true meaning of the Bible never changes, but our perception of that meaning does. The way to approach biblical interpretation is to realize that it is the inspired word of God and thus needs to be read literally. But in this literal interpretation, there can be figurative, descriptive, and prescriptive passages. The whole must always interpret the part, so no one verse or a part of one verse should ever be interpreted out of context in which it was said. As the saying goes, a text out of context is pretext. In other words, when reading anything, always ask yourself what was said before it, what was said after it, and what is the meaning of the text in the context of the entire Bible. Context is what determines meaning. For example, in Matthew 18.9, Christ says, If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into fiery hell. Reading this passage literally yields some frightening conclusions. But in the context of Matthew 18, we see that Jesus is talking about several stumbling blocks that one ought to remove in walking in a path of obedience. Hence, this is a figurative expression amongst other figurative expressions. And we can confirm this is figurative because Levitical law prohibits self-mutilation, and Christ said himself in Matthew 5.17 that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. I've always liked how Mark Driscoll explained principles versus methods. He says, Be careful not to confuse principles and methods. The principles of Scripture are timeless, whereas the methods for obeying them are timely. 
The Bible allows both a closed hand of timeless truth and an open hand of timely methods. However, great error ensues when the two are confused. For example, Colossians 2.16 commands God's people to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This is a timeless biblical principle. To be obedient, we must then develop cultural methods by deciding when the church gathers, who leads the singing, what songs are chosen, how many times each song is sung, what instruments are used, etc. When it comes to biblical interpretation, one must also know that latter revelations also supplant prior revelations. Another way of saying this is progressive revelation, since God did not come out with everything he had to say all at once, and conditions change for people over time. For example, the book of Leviticus is filled with prescriptions on what someone should do if they sin, and this typically involves a form of animal sacrifice. But Christ died and paid the ultimate atoning price for all sin for everyone, so these animal sacrifices are no longer needed. So, Christ supersedes the prior revelation. It is also imperative to understand that although the Bible is the word of God, he worked through human authors in order to produce the text, and as a result, each author produced unique flavors of the Bible. These include authors quoting other human poets and using sad and mournful language. In many books, the author's personality also seeps through. Luke, for example, who wrote his gospel and the book of Acts, was a physician, so he uses very technical Greek and is detail-oriented. As a healer, he also writes from the perspective of curing those with spiritual ailments. The book of Isaiah is prophetic, but is also very poetic. Ultimately, it is everyone's responsibility to be disciplined, read and study the Word, allow the Word to guide you, memorize the Word, obey the Word, and seek, teach, and share the Word with others. So why are there so many Bible versions? The best way to read either Testament is in their original language, meaning Hebrew for the Old Testament and Greek for the New. However, this is a goal that may be undesirable for many Bible students. So there are many English versions for you to choose from in order to assist you. Literal translations seek to be as faithful to the original language as possible and translate word for word without any intended deviation. In seeking technical accuracy, some poetic or linguistic nuances are lost. These versions include the King James Version and the New King James Version, the New American Standard Bible, and the English Standard Version. Functional equivalence translations take a broader approach and attempt to convey the main idea of a passage and are not as particular about singular words. Here, words may be added or subtracted in order to express an idea or theme that the original language did convey. The most popular version of this type is the New International Version, the NIV, and the New Living Translation, the NLT. The New Revised Standard Version, the NRSV, tries to be as literal as possible, but also may be free some of the time in order to make an idea as faithful in English as it was in the original language. The NRSV also incorporates more gender-neutral language and uses peripheral information to expand on how it translates the text. 
Paraphrased versions emphasize the broad theme of a narrative, so resultantly, specific words become less important in pursuit of the poetic essence of a passage. Examples are the Living Bible and the Message Bible. A concordance is a book that allows you to look up an English word and then find the appropriate Greek or Hebrew word and its definition. A concordance is an invaluable tool for any student of the Bible in order to get the true meaning of the text. No, it won't teach you these languages, but knowing what particular words mean will help you to dig deeper. The gold standard in concordances is Strong's Concordance, but it can become cumbersome fiddling back and forth through hundreds of pages in order to find your word. Electronic versions of Strong's make life much easier. Finally, a brief overview of the Bible and its books. I would refer all of my listeners to the written lesson because there I give a succinct breakdown of all 66 books of the Bible. So the Old Testament. The Old Testament starts in the beginning and then ends with the prophet Malachi about 400 years before the birth of Jesus. The Old Testament details the start, development, and continuance of relationship between God and his people. The Old Testament moves through history, people, places, and events, but its main concern is how all of these things relate to the divine purposes of God. The main character of the Old Testament is God, and all of the Old Testament points toward Christ. For example, Moses was a mediator who liberated Israel from bondage, as Christ is a mediator between humanity and the Father. Jesus liberated us from sin and death. Isaac carried his own wood in preparation to be sacrificed by his father Abraham as Christ carried his own wooden cross and laid down his life for all of us. The blood of an innocent Passover lamb in Egypt spared the lives of Israel from God's judgment just as Christ's sinless and atoning blood produced the perfect sacrifice to save us all from condemnation. Jonah spent three days down below in the belly of a great fish to eventually come up and save the city of Nineveh. Jesus came up from the tomb after three days in order to save the whole world. The New Testament is about everything that happened just before Christ was born, the life of Jesus, the experiences of his disciples, and the events in the early church. The main theme of the New Testament is the gospel or the good news that Christ has now arrived and opened the door for everyone who believes in him to be saved and have eternal life. Again, the main character of the New Testament is God. That concludes this lesson on the Bible. If you have any questions, please do not hesitate to email us at dlcfchurch at gmail.com. That's dlcfchurch at gmail.com. We'll see you back next time for part four of What Christians Should Know, Creation.